Let's get into the word. Shall we do that? Let's look at Proverbs chapter 15. I'm going to read from the Old Testament. I'm going to read from the Gospels. And I'm going to read from the Epistles, which is the letters in the latter part of the Bible. And then tie it all together. Proverbs 15 verse 4 says, The soothing tongue is a tree of life, but a perverse tongue crushes the spirit. Read that one more time, because this is going to be the basis of everything that we're going to talk about. A soothing tongue is a tree of life, but a perverse tongue crushes the spirit. Then come with me to John 12. And verse 31. <laughs> Jesus says, now, it's right before his crucifixion. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Religion still thinks it has yet to happen. But Jesus said, now is the time for it. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Now... We misquote that, and I'm going to come back to how that's misquoted and misapplied. But I want you to see, he says, now is time for the judgment on this world. Because of that judgment, the prince of the world is going to be driven out. It's not something we're waiting for. If it's something you're waiting for, you don't believe what Jesus said here. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And then come with me to James chapter 3, and you'll see how this all ties together. James chapter 3, verse 5, said, Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body and sets the whole course of one's life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing, my brothers and sisters, this should not be. So we want to talk about, continue to talk about, this idea of being impeccable with your word. Now, when I first heard about being impeccable with my word, I, I, I was resistant to the idea. Uh, because I don't equate, or especially at the time when I was beginning to explore some of this, I don't equate myself and impeccable in any level of my life. <laughs> I can honestly say I don't think I'm impeccable at anything that I do. And because I'm aware of these verses, things like, you know, the tongue is a world of evil and nobody can tame the tongue, I certainly, to think about being impeccable with my word, sounded like a monumental task. You guys look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. Okay. So the word impeccable, let's try it this way. The word impeccable means to be without sin. So think about being without sin in your word. Now, how many of you 
Does that sound a little bit more impossible? Okay, now we're on the same page, right? So I, I want to uh, I want to address what what does it really mean to be impeccable? Now I'm taking this again from Don Miguel Ruiz's book. Uh, it's been out 20 years now. But it's called The Four Agreements. And the first agreement he says to make with yourself is to be impeccable with your word or to be without sin with your word. But he defines sin totally differently than we would define sin. He defines it, sin as anything that you do against yourself. Now, we would define sin as anything you do against God, <laughs> right? So I don't want to get in an argument about it. <laughs> but let's just, let's just understand, when we're talking about being impeccable, we're talking about being harmless. How about that? Yeah. We're talking about being harmless. Or what the Bible says here, really in Proverbs 15:4, is the same thing. A soothing tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness therein, or you could also translate that Hebrew word viciousness therein with your tongue, crushes the spirit. So it's identifying the power of your words to bring life or death, to bring healing or to bring pain. Or if we look at what James said, the tongue is set on fire by hell, the ability to bring heaven to earth or the ability to bring hell into the earth. That's the power of our words. That's the power of our words. Now, let's bring this to the death of Jesus, because we need to understand that Jesus died because of the power of words. That his death on the cross was the end result, at least the way the story's told. Let's step back for a minute from what we think Christ's death means because of what we've been taught theologically. And let's just let the story tell itself. Sometimes it's helpful to not bring our frames of thinking into the story and to just let the story inform us instead of us informing the story. So whatever you and I think the death of Jesus means is a story that we bring to the Gospels. Because the Gospels never really attach an atonement meaning to the death of Christ. They don't. They just tell the story. Jesus himself said, I'll go into, uh, the, the Son of Man will go into Jerusalem. He'll be rejected by the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, and he'll be crucified, and on the third day he'll rise from the dead. Yeah. Right? The closest he came was at the, at the communion supper when he said, take and eat, this is my body which is broken for you. And then he said, this is the blood of the new covenant shed for the remission of Sins. So the only meaning that the story gives us is that the shedding of his blood represents the remission of sins. Right? And John, he says, if I be lifted up from the earth, he said, now is the time for the judgment of this world. Now the prince of this world is going to be driven out. So there's some of the meaning that the story informs. But ultimately, he dies because of false accusation. Because people were able to come and bring words, use their words against him, and it was their words that caused death. Or you could look at it this way. Jesus said that they sought to kill him because he, or it says in there, they sought to kill him because he being a man claimed to be God. 
So they were angered by his words and crucified him because of words. So somehow the power of words fits into the passion of Christ. Yes? Are you tracking with me? Now, we misquote this verse in John when we say, where Jesus says, but I, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto myself. We read Jesus like he had ADD. Because he, he, seriously, like he's always jumping tracks. Because he starts out by saying, now is the judgment of this world. Watch, now is the judgment of this world. Now the prince of this world is going to be cast out. And I... If I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And so here's how we do this. We kind of ignore the first part of what he said. We lift that verse out of context, and we think of it this way. We think, if we just exalt Jesus. Have you ever heard anything like this? If we just exalt Jesus, if we just lift him up, the people are going to show up. Because Jesus said, if I be lifted up from the earth, I'm going to draw all people into myself. Right? And so that becomes our, our strategy for winning the world or whatever. And we're deluding ourselves. Okay, we're deceiving ourselves. Uh, We're lying to ourselves. It makes us feel good. It makes us feel like we're a part of something. But what does that really mean to lift him up? Does that mean we come together and say, oh, Lord, we lift you high? And if we do that just right and worship, then everybody's going to come? Or how does that really work in real life? Does that make sense? Now, Jesus, it says right after that, when you put it back in his context, it says right after that, that he said that to signify the kind of death that he would die. So his lifting up is being lifted up on the cross. It has nothing to do with anything that you and I do. That's the first problem. But that creates another problem for us, doesn't it? Because he already died on the cross. And it doesn't appear anyway that that death has drawn all people to himself. It didn't happen back then. If anything, it divided. It divided a religion. It divided the Jews that were following Jesus and the Gentiles from the the rest of the Jews, right? So now we have Judaism and Christianity, and you can make an argument that without Christianity, you wouldn't have Islam. It's true. You know that, right? Christendom, at least, gave birth to Islam. Ooh. How's that one go over? So how do we find meaning and truth in what Jesus was saying? Well, first of all, we have to realize that our... And interpreting the Bible is a tricky thing. Translating the Bible is a tricky thing. Because ancient languages, in some ways, they were more precise. Like, how many of you have ever heard, the Greek language is so much more precise than the English language? Because in the Greek, we've got one word for love, but in the English, uh, but in the Greek language, they've got like five or six different words for love, so it's more precise. How many of you ever heard anything like that preached? That's absolutely not true. I can say, I can express different kinds of love using different words. I like this. That would be similar to one of the Greek words for love. I am romantically involved with. I enjoy. There's lots of different ways, words that we have to express ourselves. The truth is, ancient languages were far less expressive than modern languages. That's just the truth. So the, so what, because you got one word that can mean a hundred different things. 
And those languages are dead. So how do they go and translate the scriptures? You know what I mean by a dead language? Like nobody speaks it anymore. Like you can't go to, into Greece and say, what does this Greek word mean? Because they don't speak it the same way anymore. And by the way, the Hebrew language was lost in Babylon. They came out speaking Aramaic. That's in your Bible. That's in the book of Daniel. So to even go to a modern Jew, Hebrew language looks nothing like the ancient Hebrew languages. So let's be merciful with our interpreters and translators. Amen? It's not a conspiracy to keep you in darkness. Well, maybe some of it is. But... (laughs) But here's, here's what it says. In the original Greek, it says this. But I, if I be lifted up, will draw all to myself. Well, what does all mean? He didn't say all people. Does it mean all things? So the interpreter has to look at that and say, what does he mean? So I want to offer you my thought. Okay? I think the all that he's talking about is judgment. Watch. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, if I be lifted up, will draw all judgment to myself. This he said, signifying the kind of death that he would die. That the power of the crucifixion is to extract judgment and eat it, assimilate it, bring it into himself. That that was the moment of judgment because all judgment became centered on the cross. See, Jesus died, didn't he, because of people's judgments. Were they accurate judgments? Were they correct judgments? Or were they politically motivated judgments? Were they religiously motivated judgments? Were they judgment, was it judgments that were just motivated by misunderstandings? So what if the reality is, is that what Jesus, it's not about lifting Jesus up to draw people. It's about Jesus being lifted up at that moment when the world was being judged and he drew all judgment to himself and consumed it. And by consuming all judgment in himself, the prince of this world becomes cast out. Let's go back to James. James said it this way. My brethren, with the same mouth, we bless God, but we curse those who are made in his image. When we curse those that are made in his image, are we not speaking with a perverse tongue? Are we not speaking with a vicious tongue? Are we not releasing the power to crush those that we are cursing. All right, let's look at it this way. Let's suppose that you have a little girl who's four, five, six years old, 
and hasn't learned good and evil, hasn't learned to view everything through a lens of what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's evil, what she should be doing and what she shouldn't be doing. And she's just as happy as she could be. And she's singing a song that she likes and she's dancing around. And mom has had an extremely stressful day. Who knows what brought on that stress? Let's, let's ratchet it up and let's say that mom has a bit of a migraine headache. And every sound and noise is causing her lots of discomfort and pain, right? And mom is asking the little girl to be quiet. Would you please be quiet? Would you please be quiet? Would you please stop singing? And finally can't take it anymore and looks at the little girl and very, very authoritatively says, Listen, Susie, sorry, that's what they, that's what they pick. Yeah. Listen, Susie, your voice is giving me a headache. I need you to stop. And how does Susie internalize that? There's something wrong with my voice. My voice and my singing causes my mom pain. And because it's said with more authority, guess what? There's more of an agreement that is made. So what happened? Even though mom, listen, mom probably loves Susie's singing. Susie probably has a wonderful voice, but because Susie doesn't have the ability to discriminate in that way at that moment, she hears that word. That word goes inside of her and she makes an agreement. I, I shouldn't sing. I can't sing. And that becomes a law in Susie's life now, whereby she judges herself and whereby she limits herself. So while other girls are signing up for the choir in school, even though she has a love of music, she keeps it to herself. She sings in the shower, she, she, whatever the case may be, but she doesn't sign up for choir because after all, my voice isn't that good and she doesn't even know why she thinks her voice isn't that good because she doesn't remember the moment. It just, it became a self-governing factor through the process of her own domestication. Are you tracking with me? So now she's living a limitation. Her spirit, which was once free, has now become cursed or crushed or whatever. Now, if Susie's really fortunate, then somewhere along the line, a music teacher, someone with authority, someone that she likes, is walking along and hears her singing. It happens to hear her humming in something, somehow. Susie doesn't know anybody's around. Suddenly the choir teacher hears her and she says, My goodness, Susie, your voice. And she turns around sort of in this moment of shock and there's the choir teacher. Like there's the person of all people that you don't want to have hearing you sing. Honey, you have a lovely voice. I so wish you would try out for the choir. What happens? She, she has a choice to make a different agreement and change her life. So here's the point. See, our words work, really? Our words are magical, aren't they? And they can operate with black magic 
Or they can operate with a magic that brings healing and sets people free. A soothing tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness therein crushes the spirit. So Susie's mom didn't intend to, but in that moment she cast a spell on Susie that caused her to lose something that she loved, that caused her to lose her power, whatever the case may be. And when the music teacher comes along, she uses words, and all of a sudden in that moment, the spell is broken. The scales fall from her eyes, and she's come home to herself. You see it? What about, anybody, don't raise your hand, because we've all done it. We can all raise our hands. Anybody ever take up an offense for someone else? Somebody that you don't know or that you previously liked, but there's someone else that you like more or better or whatever, and they come and tell you a story. Would you believe what Jack did to me last week? And Jack, <laughs> and Jack just did thus and so, and 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 now, so now what's happening? Because see, here's here's what James said: the tongue is poisonous, and it poisons the members. So now I'm poisoned. So Jack does something to me. Who knows what Jack did? I can't think of anything right now. But let's say Jack did something to me, and I hurt, and so I put a judgment on him. That was terrible what Jack did. And I'm carrying that burden, and Julie's my wife. And so I go to her and I say, guess what Jack did? And I lay it out there for her. And I feel better for a moment. But then I keep thinking about what Jack did. So now that burden gets built up again. She's already heard it three or four or five times. So now I come over to Nick, my confidant, and I just say, Nick, you know what Jack did? And, and they both think that's terrible what Jack did. And they eat it. Right? They drink that poison. Now, here's my question. What happens the next time one of these two sees Jack? That's what comes up. Because see, our words create feelings, don't they? Words create feelings. Words shape perceptions. So they had no issue with Jack. So here comes Jack, not knowing that he upset me. Not knowing that I was hurt. And I vented to these two. So now, independently of me, Nick and Jack have an interaction. And as soon... Now, before I had talked to Nick, whenever he saw Jack, he was like, Man, isn't Jack a great guy? Hey, good to see you. But now he's got that stuff. So the moment he goes into Jack's presence, now that stuff's coming up. Now, uh, what... His interaction with Jack is being filtered through whatever emotional feeling he had towards me because he took up another offense. Right? So now they have an issue. And Jack doesn't know anything about it. But then Nick responds to Jack in a way that really upsets Jack. So Jack's like, that happened to Nick. You know, Nick and Jack... Sorry, Jackie, I have to pick on you. Nick and Jack are... Just going along, good friends, and Nick just looks over at Jack and just slaps him upside the head for no apparent reason. 
if you heard Jackie's last message, that'll make sense to you. Now he's got an issue with Nick. So he goes home and tells Sherry, would you believe what Nick did? And he feels better for a little bit because he gets the burden off, but he keeps thinking about it. So pretty soon, Jack and Burl are, I don't know, singing karaoke together one night. (laughs) Would you believe that Nick, what that Nick did? Now they've got issues. (laughs) Yeah. See what a fire, a little spark can set when you're not committed to being impeccable with your word. And pretty soon, how many of you ever played the gossip game as a kid? I remember playing that in kindergarten. You start with a little message or something, you whisper it around the room in each other's ears, and then by the time it gets done, it's totally different than how it started. Right? So, which means by the time it's spread around... Nick held Sherry at knife point and took all her money. <laughs> and, the, and the law enforcement won't do anything about it. <laughs> right? And all of it's based on the need to judge. Somebody is right. Somebody is wrong, somebody is good, somebody is evil. So that that knowledge of good and evil becomes the framework that gives the serpent access to our lives. Does that make sense? But now, see, here's, here's a really interesting thing. The person that we curse the most with our tongue, so the, let me sit back and do it this way. I'm talking about using my tongue out here. But everything I say, Jesus even said this, he said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And that's why James says you can't tame the tongue because the issue is not the tongue. If you're going to make it about what you say, you'll never win. See, the key to being impeccable with your word is to look at what words are going on inside you not what's going on outside of you. Which means that you'll never get there until you start paying attention to your own self-talk. You know what self-talk is? Self-talk is what you're saying to yourself about yourself all the time, constantly. And the thing is, there's bunches of you. It's not like just one voice with one opinion on one issue. When you, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you don't pay attention to what happens inside of you. That's why meditation can be so important because it quiets you down so you can start to hear what's rolling around on the inside. So the reality is, the person that we curse the most, the person whose spirit we break the most is our own. The person who we use our tongue against the most is ourself. So to be impeccable with your word, to be harmless with your word, begins by saying, I will do no harm to myself. Internally first. Which means, if I'm going to do that, I have to stop 
judging myself. I have to stop evaluating what parts of me are acceptable and what parts of me are unacceptable. I have to stop evaluating what parts of me are good and what parts of me are evil. See, we live, we can, we can end up living in a whole complexity of should, ought, must, have to, need to, ought to. So that that becomes a person's modus operandi. It becomes the way they operate in the world. It's become, it becomes the way they relate to themselves. I really don't want to help Jack and Sherry pack up and move. How terrible am I? After all they did for us, and I don't even want to get up and do it, because I want to go fishing. But I know I need to. I know I ought to. And I know I should. So bless God, I'm going to get up and go do it anyway. With resentment. Yes. <laughs> That's right. So now I'm helping them, but internally... But see how I motivated myself? I don't want... Have you seen the shirts? It's kind of a a thing now, kind of a fad right now. I don't want to adult today. I saw somebody wearing a t-shirt that said, I don't want to adult today. Anybody ever felt like that? I don't want to adult today. I don't want to deal with raising kids today. I don't want to get up and go to work today. I don't want to mow the lawn today. I don't want to adult today. But dang it, I know I should. And if I don't, I'm lazy. I'm talking about self-talk. So I decide to take a day off and not adult. And the whole time I'm like, I really should be adulting. I really, if I was a better person, I wouldn't need to take a mental health day. If I was more on fire for the Lord, I wouldn't need to take next week off. I'd be ready to preach to whomever. Paul said, be instant in season and out of season. I really should be doing that. I really need to be. And then that just becomes externalized on everybody else. So guess what? So I show up to help Jack and Sherry move, and I'm not happy about it, but I'm there because I should be, because I beat myself up to make myself. I told myself what a horrible person I would be if I stayed in bed or went fishing. Burl decided to go fishing. So now, not only am I helping them, but my job is harder. And I'm having to do more because Burl's not doing his part and Burl should be doing his part. Hey, where's, where's Burl? I thought, I thought Burl and Jill were coming today. Oh, he decided to go fishing. So now what am I doing? That lazy... Exactly. (laughs) Took the words right out of my mouth. How dare he leave us here? What have I just done? 
See, I judged him, but it was merely the externalization of my own judgment. I'm mad that he exercised a freedom that I wanted to exercise, but beat myself up bad enough that I didn't. So now I've got to turn that club on him and beat on him. (laughs) Which is why the guys at Hammerson, the worst in the pulpit, are the ones that are struggling the most inside. Whatever a preacher, teacher, person is using to try to motivate you tells you exactly how they motivate themselves. And if they're there at the church cleaning and serving, then bless God, you ought to be there cleaning and serving or whatever. It works on so many different levels. But you can't curse somebody else if you don't first curse yourself. See, if I decided to go fishing... And where I'm at the fishing hole and I see Burl. Hey. Hey. Aren't Jack and Cherry moving today? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Huh. Wonder who else they got to help them. Yeah, I don't know, but the fish sure are biting today, aren't they? <laughs> see, we're having fellowship. Yeah. And you're mad at both of us <laughs> after all we did for them. <laughs> now, here's the issue. See, we have survived as a society. We have survived as human beings. We have survived maybe, especially as those who are, we don't want to admit it, but are religious because religion really views things through that good, bad lens. Without it, it can't survive because that's what it's built on. Most of it. I don't know, maybe your experience was different. I know my experiences with God started out full of power, full of life, full of passion, doing things because I wanted to do them. But then somewhere around down the road, it became all about who's doing what they should and who's not doing what they shouldn't and, and how everybody else ought to be doing stuff. Right? So... It's a totally different modus operandi to say, I'm going to be impeccable with my word to me first. I'm going to stop judging me first. I'm going to be okay with everything that's going on inside of me. And I'm going to think about my life and I'm going to think about myself outside of the frame of good and evil. And I'm going to be impeccable with, I'm not going to say anything against myself. Now, if that becomes a commitment, if that becomes an agreement, then I begin to realize how what I say to you affects me. Okay. If I'm talking to you about someone else and I'm speaking evil, if I'm cursing someone else to you, Right? Cursing someone else to you. you got to wonder if I'm cursing you to someone else. <laughs> you can't not. 
So now I'm trying to have a friendship with you that's based on trust. And because I trust you, I'm able to tell you all this junk about this person over here. And the whole time I'm doing it, I'm eroding the trust that you have in me. So the whole time I'm talking about them, I'm actually harming myself. Because now you're not going to trust me as much. If I get mad at you and point my finger at you, you're going to respond 99% of the time by getting mad at me and pointing the finger at me. So now I've got you pointing the finger at me. So when I got mad at you, I did it against myself. Love your neighbor as yourself, not as much as yourself. Whatever I do to you comes back to me. Therefore, whatever I do to you, I do to me. Judge not, you'll not be judged. Condemn not, you'll not be condemned. Hack stand mercy, you'll be given mercy. Give and it will be given unto you. Watch this. Good measure, pressed down, shaken over. Men will give into your bosom. Jesus is not even dealing with... See, we, we, this is how we teach giving. If you give to us, then God is going to multiply it back to you. Because Jesus said, give and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over. But the last part of that is, and men shall give into you. Which means Jesus is recognizing... Loving your neighbor as yourself means whatever I do to you is going to come back to me. So if I am not impeccable and I'm judgmental with my word, it's going to come back to me. If I'm angry and hateful with Julie because I want her to change, that, that is not going to improve my relationship. That is not going to improve my marriage. If I love me and want to be impeccable towards me, I want to have a good marriage. So I hold my tongue so it doesn't come back on me. Because trust me, I mean, come on, guys. Are we the only ones that fight? And how does it usually start out? I get triggered about something I've been triggered about for 23 years. So I, all I have to do, because sometimes, not every time, but sometimes when, I, when I'm stressed or thinking hard or angry, I will clench my jaw. I'll just give it a little. And so Julie's trained herself to watch... When that jaw is clenched, now that's a trigger. That means he's mad and I'm going to get it. So what does she do? She goes into defensive posture, which is what? Fight or flight, which means either she's running from intimacy with me or she's going to attack me back. So whatever I do to her, I do to myself. So if I want to have a good marriage, I've got to learn not to clench my jaw. <laughs> not even when I'm chewing. You see it? See, the prince of this world has a field day with us as long as we remain at the seat of judgment. So here's the interesting thing that Jesus says in John's gospel. is so interesting. He says, God's father's not going to judge you. He's given all judgment to the son. And it was at the cross that the world was judged. And so what happens when Jesus... Is on the cross. 
Does he call 10,000 angels to burn down those evildoers who lied about him to defend himself? Does he come down off the cross and save himself? Does he hurl back insults for insults? No. He steps right into this pattern in the most intense way possible. He's lied about, but he doesn't lie back. He's reviled, but he doesn't revile back. He's hit, but he turns the other cheek. He's subjected to the Roman army, but he doesn't call an army of angels to bring it down. He totally steps into that pattern of hell as a human being. And he does not return a curse for a curse, a slap for a slap, or force for force. He steps into it and draws all of it unto himself. And the one who had the divine right to judge, the one who had the absolute moral authority to judge, the one who had the power to vindicate his own self with the armies of heaven, lays it all down and says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do because he ties it back into the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So every time, so it's impossible to curse unless you first hang yourself on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because I can't curse somebody that I don't first think is evil. So it's not about taming the tongue. It's about removing judgment and finding a different way to look at things without labeling it as good or bad, right or wrong, should or shouldn't. Finding a different way. But here's the problem. The serpent in us has been surviving at the tree of knowledge of good and evil, at the tree of judgment. So when it's suggested to us that we let go of judging things, it feels like we're going to die. Because in reality, that's what needs to happen. So what if we read Paul this way? Galatians, we, we love to take things. We have a case of versitis in the church because we take things out of their context and apply them to contexts that have no meaning. Paul said this, I have been crucified with Christ. And this is where I'll close. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. That's the next part. For if righteousness could be acquired by the law, then Christ died for nothing. So we make that verse about anything in the world other than what it is. <laughs> you need to die to that sin. You need to die to that urge. You need to die to your self-existence, to your self-life. 
You need to die to self, because after all, Paul said, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live yet, not I, blah, blah, blah. You know what he's talking about? He's, the whole thing is about judging. The whole thing. So to be crucified with Christ is to realize that Jesus, even though he was right, even though he had the spiritual authority and the divine right, even though he had the moral authority, even though he had the access to the power and the authority, when he was crucified, the part of him that he gave up was his right to judge. And he looked at those that were wrong and those that were evil through a lens that refused to get trapped in that frame. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So what if the eye that Paul was talking about was that eye that survives at the tree of knowledge of good and evil by feasting on judgments and then cursing those that you don't agree with? And what if he's saying... The judge in me. I was the premier judge. I was a Jew. I was a Pharisee. I was zealous. And I was angry. But that I was crucified with Christ. And now I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. And it's no longer that I that lives. I no longer live through that lens. But the life that I now live, I live... By the faith of the Son of God whom I was persecuting, but did not persecute me back, but loved me unconditionally and gave himself for me. And so now I can step back and I can look at everything without judgment. And a whole new eye has emerged in the process. I don't know. Maybe I'm just spinning it. But does that make sense to you? So if we're going to practice this, because this is hard. I mean, you're going to go, you're going to leave home and you're going to notice this stuff. You're going to notice it on the job. You're going to notice it in your relationships where there's this cursing, right? This poison, this using your word against other people or about other people or, or having to make decisions about what's right and what's wrong for, in, in regards to other people. So, for example, if, you're, if you work for a Department of Corrections, how do you operate and function in that frame and do your job safely? Right? So, I mean, that could be an issue, right? If you're a teacher or a counselor, how do you administer right and wrong and those kinds of judgments, Right? So don't start with that. Let that be what it is and do what you have to do to do your job. Start with saying, I'm going to be impeccable with my word about myself. And start noticing when you are condemning yourself. Start noticing when you're judging yourself. Start noticing when you're using your own self-talk to crush your own spirit. And just start to think about how can I provide a soothing, healing tongue for myself? See, if I can get to the place where I can kill the judge inside of me about me. 
so that I can fully embrace myself and all the parts of me. I can fully love myself and all the parts of me. And I can see every aspect of my life without judgment. I'm going to begin to heal on the inside. Jesus quoted this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Before your tongue can be healing and soothing to anybody else, your inner tongue has to become healing and soothing to yourself. I think it would do us a lot of good to paste that Bible verse on our computers and our refrigerators. And remember, physician, heal thyself. Because this kind of healing, you can't get from anybody else. This kind of healing is you claiming your power to be impeccable with your word about yourself, to bring healing to your own wounded and broken spirit so that you can function in unconditional love, not demanding it from somebody else, getting it from yourself. And when you love yourself fully, it's a lot harder to get offended because other people aren't loving you fully because you don't need it. There's no deficit. So if Nick's ugly to me, I don't take it personally because I'm so full of love for myself that I don't know. But see, I'm not demanding it from him. So I don't feel cheated. I don't feel like there's a deficit. I don't. They didn't show up to help us move. They must not love us. Probably true. <laughs> don't judge it. But see, if I'm so in love with myself, I can say, well, I don't take it out on them. I might work harder. I might not like that. I might not help them when it comes their time to move. Which means they just weren't impeccable with themselves. But not me. See it? So let's make that the goal. Just make that the goal. I don't have to change the world. I don't have to not judge everybody else. I don't have to figure out which political party is right or which religious institution is actually teaching the truth. Or which guru, sorry, apostle to follow. I just got to figure out healing myself first. Which means I'm not going to judge myself. And if you judge me, I ain't agreeing because I gave up judging myself. So see, now I'm moving into don't take things personally. Just to take it personally, I've got to agree with your judgment. But see, if I made the decision, I'm not going to judge myself. Even when you judge me, I can't agree with it. <laughs> so when Pilate looks at me, I can say, you have no power over me. And nobody takes my life from me. I choose when I give it. So if I choose to go help, I'm almost done. If I choose to go help Jack and Sherry, it's a choice that I can feel good about 
because they're not taking it from me because I'm punishing myself, feeling like i got to go. If I don't go, I'm terrible. <laughs> then my helping them move is actually a gift of love and not a gift of obligation. See how much freedom can come? All right, let's stand up. <clears throat> so if you're here this morning, just, just quickly, and I, I don't know that there's anyone like this, and, and we're not going to even make you come forward. You can always come forward afterwards if you want prayer. But I don't want to single you out. But maybe you've been living in such a place of internal torment. Uh, maybe you've, you've been exposed to so much poison from other people that you've internalized all this poison about yourself and you've got so much rage or anger or self-rejection or self-hatred on the inside that this just sounds like a monumental task. Um, If that's you, I want to say a special prayer for you uh, today. So if it's not you, if we could all bow our heads and if you could just agree with me, If, if you need this, I want you to put yourself in a receptive position. And we're going to pray for you. And I want you to have a little bit of faith that there is some of that spiritual energy from heaven that's being channeled in your direction as we pray that will give you a special grace to help you break out of that pattern. And if you're relatively free from that pattern, if you would just join me in this prayer. And so, Lord, we thank you, Father, for your goodness, your grace, your mercy. We thank you for the message and the power of the cross. We thank you for the glory of unconditional love. And we thank you that no matter what, Father, we are loved at every moment. You support us. You give us the air that we breathe. You give us the food that we eat. You keep our heart beating. And we're so grateful for those things because they're signs to us that we're loved unconditionally. And so I'm asking, Lord, for your grace and your mercy and your divine blessing and power and energy to flow over those that are especially needing it today, those that are especially struggling with self-rejection, with self-limitation, with self-hatred, with anger against themselves, with judgment against themselves. And Lord, would you release inside of them The power of forgiveness. The power to be able to forgive themselves. The power to be able to release themselves. The power of your love to be able to just begin to accept themselves right where they are. And Lord, we thank you that it comes in the fastest, most harmonious way. That it doesn't come so fast that it disrupts us, but that it doesn't take so long that we never get better. But at the exact rate of speed that is going to work to the highest benefit of everyone that needs it. And we believe this today. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name. Amen.
God bless you and have a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful day.